0: Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18. The wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. The wicked worketh a deceitful work. Now we talked last week about a number of words that um, speak of lies or deceit. The particular word that is used here is the word Shekar. And it actually um, means, it's the idea of that which which, um, promises something, but does not deliver. It's that which professes something, but is not real. It's like a a gold-covered brick. It uh, it has, apparently, it feels like it has the weight and it has the color, uh, but it uh, it doesn't deliver. When you go to the assayer uh, to, to uh, have it tested, uh, he tells you, I'm sorry, there's nothing here. It's like fool's gold. Uh, in the Old West, uh, when men were so hungry for gold, particularly here in California, they uh, would find a mine, and in that mine there would be there would be an indication of uh, gold in fact fool's gold is really fools you and doesn't it doesn't fool an expert not for an instant because it actually is 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 shinier than gold and it looks like the best gold you ever saw and yet it's uh, it's phony it's fake there's no value to it as far as as gold is concerned it's not real gold it promises more than it can deliver that's the idea it's that which is groundless. I want to show you a few verses where where this is used because it's one of those words that is uh, uh it it really enriches your understanding of certain texts when you when you understand the meaning of the word in its depth. First of all Jeremiah 23 Jeremiah 23 In verse 32. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their instability. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Now, of course, one of the common things in both the time of Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah the prophet were false prophets, prophets that came and said doesn't matter uh, what's been said in the past, this is the, this is the, the, the prediction of the future for you. And uh, what God is saying is these are false dreams, these are shaker dreams. These are dreams that, that they have professed to have and they say that certain things are going to happen but they have no power to bring them about. And those things are not going to happen. It's a false promise. It's an empty promise. In fact, he says, it shall not profit this people at all. I didn't send the dream. The dream is not for me. And therefore, it's not going to give any profit. It's groundless. It's a groundless dream. Over in chapter 27 of Jeremiah. And verse 10. For they prophesy a lie. There's the word again. It's a groundless prophecy. They prophesy a lie unto you to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and that you should perish. They prophesy a lie. It's a groundless prophecy. Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. Verse 2. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way like a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats for the Lord of hosts hath visited His flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as His majestic horse in a battle. False prophets, prophets again, that are giving something that that is, is groundless. The idea, of course, that you see in all three of these passages is that if the dream or the prophecy does not come as revelation from God, then it is shaker. It is groundless. There is no basis. On which a person, a person may, may make such a prophecy. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 3, you see it again. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, prophesy, then his father and his mother who begot him shall say to him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. It shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear rough garment to deceive, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for man taught me to keep cattle for my youth. Now, that, of course, is in that day when the fountain's going to be open to David and the inhabitants thereof. Uh, there's going to be pure justice when Jesus Christ reigns on earth. And uh, the the penalty that Moses gave in Deuteronomy will actually be carried out. That is, when a person makes a prophecy and the prophecy does not come to pass, he's put to death. A lot of these people are running around making prophecies. I'll tell you, uh, they'd better be thankful that that Old Testament law isn't being enforced today. But it will be in a future day, that millennial day. And there will be, there will be judgment upon those that make any attempt. Now, they say that uh, capital punishment doesn't deter crime. But I'll guarantee you, when they actually begin to put to death people who make false prophecies, false prophecies will stop. You're sure not going to have people like Gene Dixon and so on running around writing books about it uh, and publicizing the fact that you're giving uh, prophecies. And Gene Dixon very proudly says that uh, almost 80% of her prophecies come true. Isn't that something? Guess what? She should be stoned. It's 100% or not at all. All right? The person that goofs once will be thrust through, in this case, stoned according to the, the Old Testament law and, uh, uh, that Moses gave in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's fascinating uh, to discover that, that in the book of Ecclesiastes, it tells you precisely, if you have any dream and you think it's a vision from God, just remember what Ecclesiastes says. It, it tells you precisely where dreams come from. Dreams come from what you eat, If you eat the wrong things, you can have a dream. And prophecy comes, uh, or I mean dreams come from uh, uh, worrying too much about something all day long. You worry about something, you think about something, you concentrate on something, you go to bed at night and you have a dream. The dream is not a prophecy from God. The dream is not a vision. What the dream is, is the result of having your mind troubled with these things all day long. You go to bed and meditate on scripture you're likely to have a dream that will have something to do with scripture there's nothing wrong with that kind of a dream except don't think that it's a vision from god all right because god god will will allow the things that are in your mind to come back to you in a dream that's why people people dream about some of the strangest things and they wake up in the morning and they they say oh i dreamed i had a terrible dream last night And they they start relating their dream. I'll tell you, uh, you usually can trace it back, either to something they ate or to something they thought about all the way through the day. Uh, The thing that happens so often is that people think about things they shouldn't think about, and then when the dream comes, instead of recognizing it for what it is, it's meditation, only meditation on something that maybe wasn't healthy, they try to spiritualize it and make it into some kind of a vision from God. Be very, very careful with of those those kind of dreams. I should say that Satan also gives dreams so you can, you, he can interrupt even the best of thoughts with wrong dreams uh, supernaturally. But dreams primarily are from those those causes. Now Isaiah chapter 59 The point I'm making is that a groundless dream really doesn't mean a thing, does it? Isaiah 59, verse 13. In transgressing and lying, there's our word again, against the Lord, and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. The confession of Israel. They spoke lying words. Micah, chapter 2. Micah, chapter 2, verse 11. If a man walking, notice it says in the King James, walking in the spirit, the word is peh, which is wind. It's not talking about walking in the spirit in the way the New Testament speaks of. It's rather one walking in the wind. One, uh, the word can be used for spirit as well, but it uh, has to do with the idea of breath. And you'll notice the context. If a man walking in the wind and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people, going to be judgment upon the people of God, and one of the judgments would be the people who are claiming to make prophecy are giving empty prophecies. They are prophecies that are from the wind rather than truly from the Spirit of God. Look over at Job chapter 13. Job chapter 13. Remember that Job's so-called friends have come to him, and uh, the legalist Zophar has just spoken, and uh, Job is is uh, giving his rebuttal in chapter 12, and in chapter 13 he continues saying, uh, Lo, mine eye hath seen all this, mine ear hath heard and understood it. What ye know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior unto you. Surely I would would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But ye are forgers of groundless lies, or groundless words. You are all physicians of no value. You've got got a, a, a little placard out in front of your place. You've hung out your shingle, and you say you're a counselor. But what you're giving is empty, vain, groundless counsel. What you're giving is is a discouragement rather than a help and an encouragement. Once more into Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8. And verse 10. Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them, that shall inherit them, for every one from the least unto the greatest is given to covetousness, from the prophet even unto the priest, every one dealeth, how? Falsely. Every one dealeth with this groundless kind of a lie. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. They gave a band-aid for cancer. And what, how did they do it? When the people came and they were all panicked, they said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. That's all right. You know, when you think of it, the the psychologist deals with a person this way on one side of the scale you have guilt. On the other, you have blame, and what what the psychologist recognizes is that if this guilt is allowed to touch bottom down here, then the person is gonna is gonna crack up. He's not gonna make it. All right. And so what happens is the heavier the guilt, the more you point at blame. The, when guilt's pressing down on someone they say, oh, it's not your fault it's because your mother did something your parents did something wrong they repressed you and, uh, and they'll, 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 they'll get them to shift the blame it's interesting, isn't it that that was the first reaction of man after he fell very first thing shift the blame don't take responsibility for your own sins. And uh, uh, when Eve, uh, Adam in the garden heard the voice of God, Adam, where art thou? And the Lord found him. And, and he says, Adam, what have you done? Oh, he says, it wasn't me, it was the woman. And then what does the woman say? Well, well it wasn't me, it was the serpent. Everybody wants to shift the blame. Why? Because that, that, that momentarily relieves the guilt. Now, I will not, I will not lie to you There is a certain amount of of conscience relief that comes when you shift the blame to someone else. Satan's method works temporarily. It's like a Band-Aid on cancer. At least it covers the wound, okay? It doesn't cure you. You're still going to die from it. In fact, it's uh, it's worse than just leaving it the way it was because you forget about it. When you put... The, when you cover over the sin and he that covers his sin shall not prosper. But you see the, as you, as you begin to feel guilt and that's why people today will... When you say to them uh, did you know that that you're a sinner before God? You know what they'll say? They'll say, Oh, yeah, but you know so-and-so he's worse sinner than I am. In fact, they'll sometimes point to someone in the church. They say, oh, I know a guy that goes to your church and this guy's worse than I am. Why? He wants... He wants to try to balance up the scales, all right? Another method that the counselors will use is they will try to remove the guilt by negating it. What they'll do is they'll say, they'll say, well, you're feeling guilty about having an adulterous affair? Don't you understand and know that's not wrong? That's not wrong. Now again, listen. It works temporarily, but the thing that psychologists have not reckoned on is that guilt is not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the conscience. See, man has mind, emotions, will, conscience, and self-consciousness. That's the format of his soul. And you see, what happens is that that uh, the psychologist will say will say, it's all in your mind. You feel this guilt? You're pressed down and weighed by this sense of guilt? Why? That's all in your mind. It's, it's all in the way you think. You've got to restructure your thinking. Then you'll be able to be relieved from the thing. So he, he tells us, you know, the, the, the psychologists fell for their own gag. Twenty years ago, you could read almost any article in any psychology magazine. And it would tell you that what is called today homosexuality, uh, certainly not gay, but uh, um, scripture calls it sodomy. That, that sodomy is uh, is, is aberrant social behavior. It is dangerous to the person's psyche. It is uh, destructive in many many ways. I read an article uh, just not long ago uh, that an old article, and uh, it was giving all of these reasons why the practice of of sexual perversion was was so destructive to the individual. Right? That was article of 20 years ago. Now all of the sudden they're saying, well, you know, if you can't cure them, join them; if you can't lick them, join them. And so what they do? What they do is they say, oh, it's, it's all in our minds. It's all in the way we viewed the thing. And so they've, they've, they've decided that, that it's much better to, since people shouldn't live with guilt, that's their theory, they shouldn't live with guilt, we'll remove the guilt by making something that we've called wrong all these years by calling it right. And by calling it right, people will learn to accept it. When they accept it, they'll lose the guilt. Guess what? It doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is just because your mind has been reoriented, it does not change the conscience. And therefore, re- just simply trying to lift the guilt by calling bad good and good bad doesn't do the job. Because the conscience still speaks. You know, God, God just crosses the whole thing off. God tells us it's a sin to blame somebody. That adds to the guilt. And God says, "We'll deal with guilt this way. Forgive it. I'll forgive you all of your guilt as you confess it as what it is, sin. I'll forgive the guilt. Now, you forgive the blame. And we're going to get along just fine. God takes care of the whole thing in one fell swoop through a word called forgiveness. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So you don't have to worry about blame. You don't have to worry about guilt. Guilt is taken care of by God's forgiveness. Blame is taken care of by our forgiveness of others. And that's the way we deal with sin. Right? But what happens? Ungodly counsel. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't trust them. Why? Because they'll give you a band-aid for a serious disease. And for a moment you'll be, it'll be covered over. Imagine here they are. Surrounded by all of the troops of Babylon. And they're ready to pounce on the city. They've already sacked it twice. Here they're coming in for the third time. This is going to be the total destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And they go to the prophets, and they say to the prophets, please, you've got to help us. And the prophet says, peace, peace, everything's going to be fine. Oh, the people felt good. The prophet of God, false prophets, but the ones purporting to be the prophets of God have said it's all going to be fine so they go home and they sleep at night it's wonderful, In the middle of the night boom, what's going on they've come in, they've attacked the city, they've taken everyone captive only a remnant escaped to Egypt and the city is leveled absolutely without any stone, one stone laid upon another, the city laid waste, the city is nothing but rubble and they say to them, so what went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. The prophecy, peace, peace, when there is no peace, was groundless. It had no basis in fact. Now, another way that this word is used consistently in the, in the uh, Old Testament was to speak of it concerning idolatry. An idol is a groundless God, all right? He's a God made in man's image rather than man being made in God's image. He is, uh, uh, an idol is something that man has formed, that man has made, and it has no basis in fact. In fact, you remember the Apostle Paul, when he was dealing with the Corinthian Christians, uh, he was saying, he was talking to them about the eating of meat that had been offered to idols and there was great criticism about this actually the the situation was that the the uh, fairly cult uh, had uh, had a a practice uh, whereby they would they would have a uh, an animal slain and the best part the filet mignon, the chateaubriand of the of the animal was brought to the to the priest and uh uh the priest of that wicked, vile temple would have the best diet you ever, ever saw because he had all of these people wanting to worship. You understand, the worship was to visit the prostitutes of the temple, so it was very popular. And uh, But they couldn't come unless they brought the meat. So the guy, I mean, how much meat can a guy eat? So on the side, they would they would take the meat And they would go outside, and right behind the, right in the alley behind the, uh, the temple, they would have a meat market. And they would hire a butcher on the side, and he would uh, slice up the steaks and all of the rest, and people could come there and buy meat much more reasonably than they could buy it in the market. Well, a lot of the Christians were poor. And, uh. So they, uh, they saw a bargain, they, you know, they wanted a bargain. And uh, so they would go and they'd buy this meat. Well, some of the people that had been saved out of that philic cult, they were saying, oh, how, how could anybody eat that meat that had been given to these priests, offered to these idols? And they were just just really upset. And Paul was explaining that even though they shouldn't eat that meat, if it's going to stumble someone else. What he said was, there's nothing wrong with eating the meat offered to idols because an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. When you worship an idol, you're worshiping nothing. It's exactly what you're worshiping. It is a false god. It is a groundless god. And so this word is used in that way. Look at a few verses. Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah 44. Speaking of idolatry here, in fact the whole of chapter 44 is primarily emphasizing uh, idolatry. You could go back, for instance, to verse 9, they that make a carved image are all of them vanity, which is another word for emptiness. And their delectable things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses, they see not, nor know that they may be ashamed, who hath formed a god or melted and cast an image that is profitable for nothing. All right? That's the the, the gist of the thing. But in verse twenty it uses uses the word, and it says, He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now what's he talking about? The lie in my right hand is an idol. That's the lie in his right hand. Reach out and take that idol and with the favored hand. But it's a lie. It's empty. It's groundless. There's no basis in fact. Jeremiah chapter 51, Jeremiah 51. And verse 17. Every man is stupid by his knowledge. Every goldsmith is confounded by the engraved image. Now notice. For his melted image is falsehood. There's our word. There is no breath in them. They are vanity, the work of errors. In the time of their judgment they shall perish empty, has no real value, can't do you any harm, can't do you any good, in the sense that it itself acts, obviously, the worship of those empty creatures can do you harm, but the thing itself can do nothing. I always I always love that, that story of when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it into their temple, I mean, they here was the, as far as they were concerned in their pagan concepts, uh, here was the, 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 the great uh, article of worship as far as the Israelites were concerned. And so they, they took the Ark of the Covenant, put it on an ox cart, drug it in, to, and brought it right to the temple of Dagon. Dagon was the big god for the Philistines. He was the, he, they had a lot of gods, but boy, he was the biggie. He was the real one. And uh, they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, they set it down, and they think, wow, now we've got the, the object of worship as far as Israel's concerned, as well as our great God. And, uh, and they, they walk out. Come back a little while later and guess what happened? Dagon had fallen over. Oh, my goodness, how could that happen? Nobody had messed with Dagon, so they set him up again. This time he falls over and breaks his head open, you know, broken, imagine what's going on here and they finally said it's that ark and they were all awed with the fact here this ark was actually more powerful than their Dagon and he was knocking over over Dagon and they take the ark of the covenant out because they don't want anything to happen to their God, you know what I mean that, you got to really have confidence as you fall down and worship before this God who falls down and gets broken, you know ridiculous but that, that's the way it is Idols are nothing. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14. Every man is stupid in his knowledge. Every goldsmith is confounded by the graven image for his melted image is falsehood. There is no breath in him. 18. Oh. What profiteth the carved image that its maker hath engraved it? A melted image in the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth in it to make dumb idols, God's, God's uh, attacking the credulity of, of, of people that'll make idols. Here they work on it, and they carve it, and they get it all fixed, then they set it up and worship it. How stupid. You're, when you're making an idol, you are a, the maker of a falsehood. You are the maker of a lie. All right? Now, let's go back to Proverbs, chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 18, the wicked worketh, produces an empty, a, a groundless work, a work that has no real lasting value. Now, the word work, the second word work, the first word means simply to do or to make, to manufacture. So the wicked manufacture a a lying a an empty a groundless work. But the word "work" here is milaka. It can refer to the activity of working. It can refer sometimes to the requisite of the skills of work. Sometimes refers to the results of work. Uh, words like uh, like a mall, and uh, Yaga emphasize the toilsome labor of work. But uh, Milaka indicates the skill, the skill of the work, and as well relates the idea of the reward or the benefit of that work. Um, in fact, the word is used in Jeremiah 31:16. We won't bother turning to it, but in that uh, verse, it says, "The work shall be rewarded." And it uses the word malaka. It's the idea of work that, that produces some kind of, uh, some kind of, of a reward. Um, the revised standard version translates uh, Proverbs 11:18 with these words, "A wicked man earns deceptive wages." deceptive wages, empty, groundless wages. That's really pretty good translation. When you put the first part of this verse together, you have the wicked earns or makes for himself an empty work, a false, groundless result. They earn deceptive wages. Both masters that claim the heart put forth the promise of a reward. Both Satan and God tell us that there is a reward if Satan fulfilled all his promise if Satan did everything that he tells people he will do when he when they follow pleasure when they follow the lust of the flesh when they follow the desires of their heart if they got everything that Satan has promised they would be rich indeed but they the promises that Satan gives are empty promises folks He cannot deliver. He cannot deliver. He constantly wants you to take the short look, to look to the immediate, because you see, He can deliver on the immediate. There is a certain amount of pleasure involved in some of those things He advertises. But every one of them are are, are like a rotten apple that is rotted from the inside, beautiful on the outside. But when you bite into it, eck. See? Once you've got it, once you've, once you've taken the forbidden fruit inside, it's a grave. And men, just, men are so duped today. I, I think that there's never been, at least in my remembrance, there's never been a day where, where men have been so deceived as they are today in this way. It's becoming, it's becoming so difficult, even with good people, even with people who, who love the Lord and love their Bibles and, 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 and really are looking forward to heaven and all of the rest. It is so difficult to get people to focus on eternity. They want to make the next buck. They want to look for retirement. They're, looking, they're, they're living 98% of their time for now and given a little bit to God in the process. They'll give God the token. They'll give God the the, 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 the little bit of time, but it's hard, it's difficult to get people to think with an eternal focus. Now, you've seen this before, but I, I feel really compelled to show you again. Look with me at uh, Philippians chapter 3. Most of you know Philippians is my favorite book. Philippians chapter 3 is probably my favorite chapter. But I'll tell you, Paul got a hold of something that my friend, if you could get a hold of, it would absolutely transform your life. Absolutely, entirely transform your life. It boils down to this. In verse 1 and 2, it says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same thing to you to me indeed is not irksome, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, he is talking here, when he's talking about dogs, talking about evil workers, talking about the concision, He is talking about the false teachers. And he leaves that and talks some very positive things from verse 3 right down to verse uh, 16. But in verses 17 through 19, he returns to talk about those false teachers, those empty, vain teachers. He says, brethren, be followers together in me and mark those, mark them out so that that you, you, you have them in your mind, you know what to look for when you see these people. Mark them who walk, even as ye have us for an example. For many walk. you got to watch. Mark the false, mark the true, if you please. Many walk, of whom I've told you before, and I tell you now even have been weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. All right? They're enemies of the cross of Christ, and their end is destruction. Look at that. They're enemies of Christ and they're in this destruction. They're going to end up in perdition. But now here are the characteristics. Whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. The Phillips translation translates this, their God is their own desire they glory in that which they ought to be ashamed of, and thirdly, this world is the limit of their horizon. Now that arouses in your mind three very basic questions. First of all, who do you worship? You want to find out if you have an eternal focus or an earthly focus? What do you worship? Understand that the word worship originally in the English, Old Anglo-Saxon was worth-ship. When you talk about what you worship, it's not where you go to church on Sunday, but rather where do you place your value? What is important? What, you know, you, you ever hear a person say, uh, well, yeah, it's a nice car and I spent $10,000 for it, but it was worth it. Okay? It was worth it. That little phrase, it was worth it, is saying that is what is worth something to me. And you've got to examine your heart and ask yourself, where is your value? Where? What do you worship? What, if if it was a choice between this or this, which would you choose? Which would you say is worth the more? All right? They worship what they want. They worship their desires. Second question. What excites you the most. What gets you excited? You see, the idea of glorying in something. Uh, we don't we don't talk that way in modern English. I don't hear any of you saying, "Oh, I glory in my wife." See, but. What we would say is, I've got an exciting wife, all right? Got a wonderful wife. The idea of glorying something is, is attaching meaning to it. My wife means a lot to me, we'll say, right? They got excited about the kind of things that they should be ashamed of. You listen at the job today. Just listen to guy's talk. And listen to how they tell others how excited they are about things they should be ashamed about. Right? Third question. Where is your confidence? Where's your confidence? This world is the limit of their horizon. You only go around in life once, so you've got to grab all the gusto so you can, right? Isn't it? Now, haven't you heard that somewhere? Sure. Because the world is the limit of your horizon. You cannot see any further than life. And The Bible teaches that life is simply the staging area for that which is of real value. That we in life live with an eye on eternity because everything we do here affects our eternal welfare. And that's where the action is. We're in this training stage right now where we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Someday we're going to know Him even as, we, uh, as He knows us. Someday we're going to see Him face to face and we're going to be like Him. And the quality of life that we enjoy for the countless ages of eternity is largely determined by how we live here. You live for Jesus Christ here, you lay up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth. Treasure on earth is going to perish any treasure you leave here. You know, I mean, I could care less when the Lord takes me home in the rapture who gets my savings account, as small as it may be, or who gets my car, or who gets my house. They can have the dumb thing. They have no value. I can't take them with me. And so, you see, if my eye is really fixed on eternity, there, though I will be a good steward of what God has given me now, I am not going to focus my attention on it. And if I lose the whole thing, Big deal. What's the value of it? So it's gonna last me till I die. Maybe if there's a rate we're going in this world, the Lord's gonna come before I die. You know, so so if I lose my house, you know, wouldn't it be stupid of you to be sitting mourning, moaning because you'd lost your business and you'd lost your house and you'd lost your car and you'd lost everything? and you're sitting there and you're crying and weeping the day after you've lost it all, the Lord comes? You're, Whoa, wait a minute. You'd be ashamed of He's coming, wouldn't you? Say, how stupid I was. You know, I'll tell you. The Lord, the Lord met a man and loved him. One of the few individuals in the New Testament that says specifically that the Lord loved him. It said specifically that the Lord loved John. He was the beloved apostle. And it said specifically that he loved the rich young ruler. John, of course, put his head on Christ's bosom and followed him to the death. The rich young ruler turned his back on the Lord. And it says the Lord, looking on him, loved him. But he went away sorrowful because he had many riches. All Christ asked. Here in uh, middle 30s A.D., all he asked was for this young man, it was emphasis, young, he was young, probably a teenager, and the emphasis was, the Lord said, just give your money all away. Forty years later, he lost it anyway. Here he is, a man who said, no, I've got to hang on to my possessions, I reject Christ, And he's hoarded all this, and he probably got richer and richer and richer. And here he is, a man of 55 years of age, 56, 57, somewhere in there, all right? And he's just got it made, and he's about ready to retire. And Titus, the Roman general, comes into Jerusalem, sacks the whole city, and puts into slavery all of these Jews that were wealthy. If he happened to escape, he went to Masada and died there. But he didn't get out with his riches. He never saw retirement. Isn't that interesting? Christ knew that. And when you have an eternal focus, you, see, you say, all right, I, man, I'll, I'll put it, a little wealth, a little riches, sure, I'll do whatever you say, Lord. Why? Because it's an eternal focus. Now, the fascinating thing about Philippians 3 is this. You got the same three questions answered earlier. After he's talked in verse 2 about the dogs and the evil workers and the Concision, who would be the Judaizers, it says in verse 3 For we are the circumcision. want to know who the real people are. Here they are. Who do you worship? Who worship God in the Spirit. There's the real answer to that question. You don't worship your own desires. You don't worship what you want. You worship God. Right? Secondly, what excites you the most? And rejoice. Boast, actually. The word, kakamai, which means to boast or to glory. Boast in Christ Jesus. You want to get excited about something? I'll tell you something get worth worth getting excited about. You don't get excited about the things you ought to be ashamed of. You get excited about Jesus Christ. Where's your confidence? Things of this world? And have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in anything that I might do. Now notice then, he launches from there these words. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Anybody thinks he should have confidence in the flesh, I would have confidence in the flesh. Notice, he was circumcised the eighth day, he had all of the pedigree of a Pharisee, that's down through verse 6, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He's been stripped as a result of being stripped down to nothing, he found out what was really valuable. And do count them but refuse, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith, that I may know Him. Here are His goals, see? That I might win Christ, verse 8. That I might know Him in the power of His resurrection, verse 10 that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, verse 11, which had to do with the, the victorious Christian life, not with the idea of, uh, of simply being uh, raised at the last resurrection, but attaining unto the resurrection of the dead was to, to have translated into your life the meaning of the resurrection of Christ. Not as though I'd already attained, either we're already perfect, but I follow after. That's the same word as press in verse 14. I press after. If that I might apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Paul had before him a very singular goal. When God saved me, he saved me for a purpose. And Paul says my life's goal is to find out what that purpose is. Not to make money. Not to grow rich. Not to have a happy life. Not to have a, a, a life in terms of production as far as the world measures it. My goal is to find out day by day why Christ saved me and to live that out in my life. Christ saved me, not just to make a lot of money, that's obvious. He saved me with an eternal goal in mind, and I want to live in such a way that I'm constantly attaining that goal that God had for me when He said, there's Paul, I'm going to save him. And I'm going to do, Paul says, I'm going to do everything in my power, living my life in such a way that I might complete the job that He laid out for me when He saved me. That's what he's saying in verse 12. So then, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be mature, be thus minded. What's he saying? That's for you, beloved friend. That ought to be your life. As many as are mature, be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God will reveal this unto you. If you have anything else in your mind that you have set before the goal that He has for you, God's going to be faithful in making that clear. Nevertheless, as to that which we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. That last phrase is not in some of the manuscripts, so it's not in some of the translations. But nevertheless he says th- uh, th- let us let us walk let us walk by the same rule let's have the same standard let's have the same the the same goal in mind here and then he goes on and talks about these false teachers and when he after he says the world is the limit of the horizon here's what he says this is the bottom line of the whole thing for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our lowly bodies that may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. Now, you see, the the picture is this. We must have a horizon before us that is related to an eternal goal. Anything else, anything less than worshiping God, getting excited about Jesus Christ, and living with no confidence in the flesh, but living with an eternal goal in mind, anything else, anything at all, is empty. It's shaker. And the problem that I see developing among Christian men today is they are They're grasping and grasping and grasping for those things that are nothing but wind. I've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes with the women on Thursdays. It's really fascinating because here's the thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes. With this, I'll close. Nothing that satisfies. That's the first chapter of the book. Then add to it this there is nothing that satisfies in all I experientially and learned philosophically. That's chapters uh, the end of chapter 1 right down to the end of chapter 11. You go through that book and boy, it can be very depressing because he just tries everything. Everything. Wine. Women. Works. Worldliness. You name it. He tried it. And it didn't satisfy. And he learned and he studied and he, 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 he groped for everything. And again, it didn't satisfy. There's nothing that satisfies in all I've tried and learned. And he tried it all. If chapter 12 wasn't on the book, it'd be a whole book. But there's a big if. If God is left out. That's the thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes. The missing factor is not, you know, you guys who love the Lord and walk with the Lord and go to work just like everybody else will today. You put in your eight hours, you'll do your job, probably do it a little better than anybody else, put a little more effort into it than the unbeliever, all right? And you walk away, that, away from that job Satisfied, and they'll walk away empty. And what's the difference? you got God and they don't. You can do the very same thing. You'll leave God out and it will never satisfy. It'll be empty. It'll be shaker. It'll promise great reward. And when you get there, there'll be nothing. Living for God is where it's at. I'll tell you, you can be a kind of the rest of the world, if you'll simply worship God, get excited about Jesus Christ, and have a eternal eternal view, live with eternity's values, and again make all the difference in the world. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. Let's pray right now. Father, we we thank you for what you have been able to teach us thus far. Won't you just help us? To be learners, to be sensitive, to learn these things, so that we might walk away from this class and for this day, for this week, we might live with eternity's values in view rather than just merely a temporal view. Thank you for what we know you're going to do. In His name, amen. You guys have a special day today, okay? The Lord bless you.